This is IAQ Radio, indoor air quality radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Hey, and welcome to IAQ Radio. We're going to have our final coverage today, our hurricane coverage. We're going to do the finale. We've got Dr. Ralph Moon calling in from Tampa. Actually, he's on the computer. Uh, and we're going to have Michael Bowden, attorney from Houston, Texas. So we're going to wrap it up here and uh, move on to 2018. But before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio trivia question. Hello, everyone, and congratulations to IQ Susan Valenti, IQ Media Group, LLC, in Andover, Massachusetts, for being the first person to identify August 17, 2006, as the date of the first broadcast of IQ Radio. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, February 16, 2018, has been sponsored by Ideas, a solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's trivia question. Name the, name the intensity rating on which hurricanes are rated. Back to you, Joe. Okay, so we've got Ralph Moon. Dr. Moon manages the building science department at GHD Services in Tampa, Florida. He's a building scientist with more than 34 years of consulting experience in the areas of duration of loss, risk assessment, project management, industrial hygiene, and indoor air quality assessment. He has published over 100 peer-reviewed articles and papers and is a frequent expert witness on insurance-related claims and projects. He's just back from Miami yesterday, actually, doing some more expert witness work. He has a unique background that combines his extensive field experience, seminar development, research and legal services in an IAQ, building science and disaster restoration. We've also got Mike Bowden, an attorney in Kingwood, Texas, with a long career in construction law and a lot of work in indoor environments with indoor environmental professionals and restoration contractors. He's currently a vice president of the board of directors of the Indoor Air Quality Association, and he had extensive experience working on standards through the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, and uh, was a big contributor to the S520 standard, and I think maybe S500 as well. Gentlemen, let's make sure we've got you on the line. We're here. Thanks, Joe. Hello, Ralph. Mike? This is Michael. Thank you, Joe. Yes, sir. Great to have you. All right, let's get started. Um, first, I want to get a little idea of, of your perspective. Let's start with Ralph on the recovery. Um, 
starting with Florida, I guess. And Ralph, I don't know if you get down into the Virgin Islands or Puerto Rico at all, but if you could update listeners on where we're at and uh, sure. how things are coming along. So uh, our work in Puerto Rico and the other islands is pretty limited. We do have selected projects, but this year the total volume of work uh, from that area was pretty underwhelming. We had invitations, and here was the problem. The first question was, could we get down there by an air, uh, aircraft? Was there a place to stay? The, the area where we're supposed to investigate typically was uh, commercial buildings. Did they have power and water? And were they physically there? And so if we could overcome those four, that was one element. We didn't. Uh, many times the client would arrange the, the claim. We would go down and they say, cancel. We're, we're just going to just not to cover that loss because it's gone or it's flooded out. The other challenge was just the, the, uh, the safety factor. And uh, the company has a pretty um, conservative viewpoint about that. And uh, in the end, we didn't do anything in Puerto Rico or the islands. Hmm. So how are things coming along in Florida? Uh, this year, as we, if we look back to 2004, five, six, and seven compared to, to this, this season, it was modest. Normally, we would have literally thousands of claims coming in after a hurricane loss. This year, it's in the hundreds, maybe four, five, six hundred. Uh, hmm. But we had a lot less. And it seems as though uh, the insurance providers were just being much more rapid in their response to uh, their policyholders. <clears throat> and rather than bringing in a consultant to evaluate the loss, they were just as rapidly as possible trying to provide a check and, and give them some, uh, some, uh, some help. Interesting. Um, Mike, how about Texas? How are things coming along in Texas? You guys had a more widespread what? damage. We did. August the 24th through the 30th, we experienced Hurricane Harvey, and we'll go over the numbers a little later in the broadcast, but we got as much rain in those four, five, six days as we do all year, almost 50 inches. So it caused widespread uh, destruction throughout South Texas. I, I live in Harris County, and it was just a massive mess. I have never seen anything. I've been there for 61 years. I was born and raised in Houston. Uh, my mother uh, still lives in the house that my father built in 1958, and we and uh, she had three feet of water in her house. Never had a drop in 60 something, almost 60 years. So it was it was massive. Uh, I will talk about a little bit later all the numbers, but uh, it was a, it was a, I read somewhere it was a 40,000 year flood event. Wow. And how has that affected your workload, Mike? Have you um, had an increased workload with IEPs or with restoration contractors that have had issues as a result of insurance coverage or just, you know, any number of other items? Well, what happened in Hurricane Harvey was most of the work was done by the homeowners because there was over 100,000 structures affected in Harris County alone, much less all the surrounding counties. So most of the work was done by volunteers. Uh, many of the churches, uh, some of the real estate companies like uh, Keller Williams Realty uh, sent in teams from all over the country. And when you have that massive of a volunteer effort, uh, many of the remediators were just so overwhelmed that a lot of the professional services just couldn't get uh, connected up with the people that needed them. And so what's happening now is we're slowly rebuilding. Um, 
There is a shortage of, of skilled labor. Uh, the cost increases have gone up by 30%, and we're just struggling to get along. So there's not been a lot of legal work generated as yet. I'm wondering if I throw this out for either of you, um, because it, you know, there was such widespread damage uh, all through the Southeast, I, I'm assuming some of it wasn't responded to as quickly as we would like in a in typical situation. Are you guys seeing a, more of a mold uh, rush, I guess, more mold type claims coming in now, uh, three, four, five months later? Uh, I'll go first, Mike, if you don't mind. Uh, no, uh, and that surprised us. The predominant claim that's coming in, in the Keys is flooding, flooding and structural damage. In the rest of the area north, it's roof damage. Roof claims are coming in by the hundreds per week. And so like last week, we had like four or 500 come in. So uh, we're scrambling to do roof damage, but we're not really doing much mold work. I think that may come later, but we were hoping it would come in January, but right now it's mostly structural work. Interesting. Mike? I have to echo um, Ralph's claim, Ralph's assertion. It, we're not seeing any mold claims really uh, start deluging yet. What we're seeing, because of the fact that the, it was probably uh, more of a massive flood rotter event than it was a windstorm hail, uh, the, the water came and left. It, 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 kept, it stayed in some areas as little as a few hours, and those homes were not well the mold claims didn't aren't going to be generated out of those homes. There was a portion of West Houston where the water stayed for as much as 11 days. So uh, I'm anticipating more mold claims. But right now, what we're seeing is surface water flooding, very limited uh, roof damage. But you have to also look at it, at it in this context. And most of the places in flooded in Houston were not in flood um prone areas so very few people had flood insurance mm -hmm. so they're relying on fema and other sources to rebuild i think one of the twists that'll happen in the future is as mike said uh, a lot of homeowners took the initiative and tore out the lower probably four feet of gypsum in their home that not only taking out the mass of water but also any microbial growth but the other interesting thing is that i think will emerge is there'll be complaints once the home gets back into good shape they'll complain of HVAC and ductwork problems with mold growth and, and debris that may be distributed throughout the air conditioning system. So that's probably something that'll be on the horizon is HVAC related problems. Okay. That's a great point, Ralph. Cliff, I want to make sure I give you a chance to jump in here. Any follow-ups? Uh, no, I'm good, Joe. All right. We, you know, we, we've heard tales of, um, uh, restoration contractors, particularly in Florida, kind of deliberately minimizing their emergency response uh, to allow things to escalate and then consider everything a category three and, and gut the area. I, I'm wondering, Ralph, if you've run into any of that. I mean, you know you do a lot of work with the insurance companies. Is that a complaint you've been getting or is that something that maybe was more localized to um, the people that were telling us? I'll have to tell you, Joe, I have never heard that. If anything, the, the contractors that come initially, the mitigation contractors that dry, uh, maybe there's been some accusations of being too thorough, but never have there been, I heard of someone doing an incomplete job, uh, except for maybe a rare occasion. So I'd say no to that one. 
What about categorization of the water? Have there been many disagreements with respect to is this category one, two, or three in your experience, Ralph? Uh, interesting. I had a deposition last week, and um, there was no consideration whatsoever about the category of water that was being discharged from a kitchen sink into a cabinet until the deposition. And the opposing counsel said uh, that this was category three water. And I said, what are you doing at the sink that you would have category three? But sometimes there's a strategy to kind of shake things up in the course of an investigation uh, for opposing counsel to propose that, that this, was, this, this moisture that may have been introduced either by a flood or by a roof or by a sink, depends upon the combination, could be more severe than you thought. And uh, that's the first time that's happened to me. But with regard to this circumstance, the flooding uh, circumstance that Mike experienced, we had the keys, is typically category two. And we re recognize too that roof penetrations, although they may originate from rainfall, can advance to category two with time, depending on what it encounters. But I've never heard of a two going to a three. So that's, that's my experience. Okay. And guys, I want to continued along the insurance line a little bit and throw this out. Uh, insurance issues have become more of an issue, obviously, since the hurricanes. You know, you, you get this flood of insurance claims, and of course, the insurance companies are, are going to be looking closely at things, and um, they're going to look at how well their policies worked um, after the, you know, large loss like this, especially when you've got more than one in, in several different areas. What kind of changes do you think we can expect from the insurance industry, if, if any, after their experience uh, with these recent hurricanes? Let's start with Mike. Well, what happened in, in, in Houston was many areas of town flooded that had never flooded before, weren't even close to a flood-prone area. Therefore, many, many, many people, and very few people, had flood insurance. So what what has happened? What what we anticipate happening in the insurance industry is, because the damage was so, we had 190 billion dollars of damage just in Harris County. With all of those claims and all of those insurance payouts, there is expected to be a surcharge levied against uh, homeowners insurance uh, throughout the state of Texas, especially in the southern part of the state. So. Even if you had in flood insurance or didn't have in flood insurance, you will see an increase in rates as the uh, uh, industry struggles to recover some of those uh, those damages. That's interesting, Mike. Will they have to take that proposed hike to like the insurance commission, or will they be able to just ram that through somehow? Uh, I think they're going to have to go through the insurance commission in the state of Texas, but I'm not an expert on, on legislative matters before the state board of insurance, but I can tell you one thing, a lot of money was paid out and they're going to have to recover that some way. Interesting. Interesting. So people who are not in a flood area may still end up helping to pay for those who decide to build in flood zones. Um, Ralph, I wonder if you have any thoughts on, possible changes in the future with respect to insurance. Okay. Well, first of all, you know, I'm not representing the insurance industry today. <laughs> I mean, none of us on the, on the panel are, are representing the insurance industry, but I do have some observations that are I think, reasonable. And that is, I think that uh, as far as anything new, I can't really conceive of something new, but rather 
that the insurance companies, as in the past, will try to enforce the basic provisions of their policy. I mean, the, the policy it consists of certain provisions. I kind of term them as promises. And if, if they promise to provide certain coverage, they, certain, they expect that the homeowner will provide certain promises to be forthcoming in describing the extent of damage. That has been a problem recently, not just with hurricanes, just with policies in general, where the homeowner has a loss and there seems to be some reluctance to, uh, to uh, follow the duty within 60 days to describe the damages in a for informally, either in, in a recorded message or in a description of the damage. And I think that's the, usually the first step and that's the first step that the insurance company asks for is say, hey, within 30 days, uh, give us a letter or re respond to our letters that describe the extent of damage. And that's the part that seems to be somewhat confounding in a lot of, uh, uh, for a lot of insurance companies is trying to get promptness from the, from the homeowner to be definitive about what was damaged. So um, I think they'll just still fight for that. Use the language to say, hey, you didn't do it or you did do it. And then, then in the end, it ends up with a judge and jury. And uh, from, from their perspective, they would hope they'd be persuasive. And often from the homeowner's perspective, they, they try to leverage the circumstances, the loss, and the difficulties they went through to maybe get the sympathy of the jury. Ralph, what would you recommend for a homeowner to, you know, obviously they should try and document the damages as quickly as possible, but is there anything else that um, you'd recommend they do to help them with respect to making sure this doesn't come back to bite them? Well, keep in mind, I'm coming from a very isolated position. I'm not in the boardroom of insurance companies. I'm not at the executive table talking about philosophies or strategies, but my observations and, and things listening to homeowner or to adjusters is simply this, just be truthful. Just tell the truth. Come forth. Don't complicate the relationship with, with efforts to sue somebody because that usually just slams the door in the relationship. It is be forthright. Uh, I think that for most uh, adjusters I've known is they want to find coverage if they can. Uh, they want to help out. They want to, be, they want to be complete, get it off their desk, and move on to the next one because there's about 200 more on their desk. So they, they, they just are looking for a cooperative relationship. And if you provide that, it can sometimes be effective. Okay. Mike, anything you'd like to add there? Sure. I found that the insurance companies, especially in my mother's uh, case, the, the flood insurance carrier, were extremely responsive. They were very sympathetic. Uh, they showed up when they were supposed to show up. They, they were very thorough in, uh, uh, in their, and efficient in their examination of the structure and the contents. Uh, it, it was extremely, I, I think it's extremely well documented how much, uh, and you can also go to certain websites in Harris County and get how much water was uh, in each area of town. And so they're, they're, they're cognizant of the fact that there, were, there was a lot of water. And it was in some in some places that was there for a long period of time. So I, I think the insurance companies, in my estimation, are doing a great job right now. I think it, it has been and it, it was such an incredible event that uh, the professionals, the remediators and the restorers and the inspectors could not get to all 136,000 homes fast enough to make 
this a manageable disaster. So I think the insurance companies, in my estimation, have been doing a great job. Mm -hmm. And let me add to that. I had a chance to do a presentation with another attorney about depositions. And uh, we were, it was right during the hurricane response time. And before the presentation, I was asking some adjusters how things were going. And they had described that since the hurricane came, they, they were trying to get this all done in 90 days. This particular insurer was about 99% completed with all the policies that had submitted claims in that period. But they were working 16-hour days. They were working seven days a week. They had cots set up for the employees to sleep at the, uh, at the offices so they could be more consistent. But uh, I think that the vast majority had, it was like all hands on deck, trying to be responsive and quick as possible, literally living at the office, eating cold pizza and, uh, and sodas, getting it through and getting done. So I, I was pretty impressed. And as I said, in this particular instance, they're about 99% completed with all policies that had submitted claims. And that was my experience. That was my experience as well. The adjuster that handled my mother's house had several thousand claims and was coming in from, I, I don't remember where he was from the Midwest somewhere, but they were doing a yeoman's job. Hmm. Cliff, I want to let you jump in here. Any quick follow-ups? Yeah, yeah. I just wondered, um, particularly Mike, if you're seeing any, anything like this in Texas, you know, one of the unique things that happened at the MGM fire was they had an insufficient amount of insurance and the insurance company ended up selling uh, the MGM after the fire an insurance policy. Uh, and uh, they then get paid for the loss. And over you know, a number of years, uh, MGM uh, you know, paid them back. I wondered whether there are any creative solutions like that in Texas between government uh, and the insurance industry in trying to help the people that need it? I, I think we're too early in the process to get that complex, but I do think that the, that the sheer amount of damage paid out over a short period of time is going to require the creative solutions, whether there's coinsurance involved, multiple levels of coverage, whether the federal government gets involved, or whether the state and local municipalities. There's a lot of there's a lot of money flowing into Houston right now, and I, I do to, to aid in the reconstruction. So I do think that uh, there's going to be some creative solutions worked out, but I haven't seen those in action as yet. Thank you. I wonder, do either are either one of you familiar with any insurance companies that? look like they're going to have financial, you know, issues and maybe would even go belly up as the result of all these damages they're paying out? I, I certainly am not familiar with, uh, that's not come to mind just yet. That again, is kind of Mike said, we'll see what evolves, but there were a number of years without hurricanes. So we hope that that helped to lend stability. The only challenges were some of the policy, the majority of policies in the area struck uh, by the hurricane, and that's always a risk. But, but nonetheless, if they were balanced in their uh, geographic distribution, which is tough to do in Florida because the hurricane affected the whole state. Um, mm. but, but nonetheless, it's a function of balance of policies and, and their fiscal strength. We don't know that yet. Plus, Ralph, Ralph is absolutely Ralph is absolutely correct. Uh, these excess carriers, especially uh, from the, the larger carriers, have have the de the geographic distribution is so well managed that a one hit in a specific area of the country 
is not going to necessarily affect the overall well-being of the of the company, but it's got to hurt. It's got to hurt, and those those dollars have to come from somewhere, whether they're shareholders or or, or government assistance. But they're the excess carriers that I've been in, in touch with are pretty well geographically distributed. Cliff, did you want to jump in? No, I, I just wanted to mention too that a lot of insurance companies, for insurance purposes, buy reinsurance. They actually are insured by other insurance companies, and I suspect that that may come into play as well. Sure. I'm wondering, you you both seem to feel that the, the insurance companies have done a pretty good job, and they've been responding well, and they've been you know covering what you know what was supposed to be covered essentially. And I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you seem seem to think they're doing a pretty good job. I'm, I'm wondering if, um, if how, what your thoughts are on the use of maybe a public adjuster for people that feel like they're not getting that kind of response. Um, any thoughts on the use of public adjusters in these types of situations after hurricanes? Um, I haven't heard anything about uh, any pros and cons. I, I believe there is a place in every industry for professionals, uh, the public adjusters I've dealt with over the years are very professional and have, I, I believe, the client's um, uh, needs in mind. I haven't. I, I will. I will say that I do believe that there's going to be probably more public adjusters involved in this particular uh, disaster than have done in the past because of the fact that very few people had insurance coverage for this peril. So I think that. These homeowners who either in, in conjunction with volunteer organizations did their own remediation and drying, I believe they're going to be looking for help as they start to rebuild and as the, the, the FEMA limits, I believe, are, are low. And so they're going to be looking for professional help in other areas to try to, um, you know, get back on their feet again. I do believe there's probably going to be more public adjusters here than have been before, and, and I, it, it's a well-regulated industry, and I, I think there's a, a great need for those uh, individuals, and uh, I'm looking forward to working with them. Uh, Ralph, any comments? Well, I've had a, a chance to work with a wide variety of public adjusters. Um, some, I think, are very, very professional, and I've enjoyed uh, their company and their friendship, and then others who are very, very aggressive and uh, tend to submit highly inflated uh, uh, invoices or, or estimates for repair of damages. And I have found that, you know, so that, that process of the uh, public adjuster with the assignment of benefits, the submittal of huge invoices greatly complicates the speed at which the homeowner can be made whole. And I think as, I, as I've heard at other RIA, Restoration Industry Association meetings, it's all about the policy holder. And so when the process gets complicated and slowed down because of personal interests and not focused upon the homeowner, I think we have to think about that. And again, uh, so there's a wide variety of people who, who engage in that. Obviously, there's been a niche created because there's, was, there was a need. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I, overall, I find it more of a complication than a benefit. All right. Fair enough, gentlemen. I think Cliff, it's probably because you've got a, a special announcement here. We're going to probably break just a little early for halftime. Um, does that sound good to you? Good, Joe. Fine.
Hello, everyone. I'm sad to report the passing of William Lakin, Certified Restorer. Bill was the 2005 RAA president and 2001 recipient of the Martin L. King Award. Bill passed away in his hometown of Staffordshire, England on January 8th of this year, and funeral services were held by the family on January 19th at the Stafford Crematorium in the United Kingdom. Bill was survived by his wife, Sue Lakin, a frequent companion of his on Bill's trips to the United States over the past three decades. During the early stages of Bill's career, he was active in the United Kingdom's local cleaning industry association and was also the longest serving president of the National Carpet Cleaners Association, serving seven years. In the 1980s, Bill was an explorer, a seeker of knowledge, and part of the early wave of Brits who joined RIA looking to network with U.S. and Canadian restorers and for advanced education in the restoration arts and sciences offered through RIA's National Institute of Fire Restoration Division. Bill endeared himself to his fellow North American RIA members and became the association's favorite English son and a mainstay of RIA seminars and events. Bill was a great student and early adopter, taking home what he learned in the States to help better educate England's cleaners and restorers on the nuances, specialized techniques, chemicals, and equipment that helped develop the insurance repair marketplace in the United Kingdom. Bill often flew across the pond to Northern Virginia in the late 1980s and 1990s to help Martin King prepare for CR Hell Week as the Certified Restore course was known in those days. In fact, he was at the class in such a role in 1988, the year that both Cliff Slotnick and Pete Consigli took their CR class. Bill was a close friend of pioneering restoration chemist, Gene Madison of Madison Chemical Company, who was posthumously honored with the ML King Award in 1995. Bill became a great instructor teaching restoration coursework throughout the United Kingdom. In the early 2000s, Bill anglicized ASCR's version of the Guidelines of Fire and Smoke Damage Repair, republished under the National Institute of Disaster Restoration brand by editing the document to conform with localized language and the metric system. RIA published the guidelines as the United Kingdom edition. It could be said this was the genesis of the globalization of RIA. Bill and his wife Sue formed a close bond with the late Marty and Judy King, so it seems only appropriate that the sad news of his passing was formally announced to the RIA membership last night in Austin, Texas, at the annual Martin L. King Award ceremony that recognizes an individual for their contribution to the restoration industry. The ML King Award pays tribute to Marty's legacy and is RIA's most prestigious individual honor. Bill Lakin was the first and only RIA president to preside over the organization from his home abroad. In 2005, at RIA's annual fall conference in St. Louis, Martin King was the master of ceremonies at an association-sponsored roast of the Z-Man, which was orchestrated by Pete Consigli and friends. From the podium, Bill Lakin performed the hilarious roast segment that anyone who, in the, who was in the room is not likely to forget, stripping down from a three-piece men's suit to a pink ballerina's costume. Bill's gregarious and self-effacing demeanor with his English 
dry sense of humor made it one of the highlights of the roast, which culminated to my great surprise when the entire immediate Slotnick family flew in to support me. In 2008, in Grapevine, Texas, Bill Lakin presented the ML King Award to Pete Consigli due to Marty's absence from the RAA convention that year. It was one of the few times I can remember that Pete was speechless. <laughs> According to Rusty Amaranthi, CR 2006 MLK Award recipient and 2008 president of RAA, no one could brighten a room with his passion more than Bill. My term as RAA president wouldn't have been as successful without it. We've lost a great brother of our industry. Pete and I will remember our illustrious colleague with fondness. May Bill rest in peace. On a happier note, it's my pleasure to congratulate Ernie Storer, Bale's Restoration DKI, as the recipient of the 2018 Martin King Award. Back to you, Joe. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, wolfsense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. All right, we're back. Second half of our interview, we've got Dr. Ralph Moon and Mike Bowden. Gents, I want to start with Michael on this second half. Um, infrastructure. I want to talk a little bit about infrastructure, code, uh, building code, zoning code, etc. Um, you know, Mike, there, there was a lot of uh, publicity about the fact that, you know, the Houston area was kind of concreted over in many uh, at least according to the reports I've seen, and that that may have added to the issue when you had all that, you know, 50 inches of rain and the rain had nowhere to go. Um, is there any discussion down there about changing the codes? Or, or I, I mean, at this point, I don't think there much there is much in the way of code. Uh, changing the zoning codes, maybe looking at better ways of making sure that when we build, things are able to drain. Well, for either fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, there is no zoning in Houston, which has uh, resulted in a lot of hardscaping over the years. What happened in Houston was not, necess was not necessarily a natural event. The major parts of town that got flooded were flooded as a result of releases from controlled sources. The Attics, Barker, Barker Attics Reservoir System was was um, opened, and I don't know if you've ever seen a, a map of Houston, but Houston is transverse by bayous. Well, that's what we call them here in, in, in Texas. But the when the water was released from the reservoirs, there was a massive 
downstream effect that literally put water into neighborhoods that had never seen it in 60, 70, 80 years. And again, up on the northeast side where I live in the, in the Kingwood, Humble area, next to Lake Houston, the Conroe Dam had collected a lot of water and they released that and it went down the San Jacinto River. So what has happened in Houston is kind of a perfect storm in the sense that there's been massive development, massive amounts of new hardscape. There's a lot of things they've been doing, especially in the San Jacinto River, mining sand and having dams at, at, at pinch points where the regulated flows differ at various points along the river. There's multiple jurisdictions that, that control uh, flood water in Houston. So I think what you're going to see is probably a lot less development, a lot less hardscape. A lot, and there may be a push for for some sort of zoning regulation, but that's probably uh, uh, next to impossible. But what I do think will happen is there'll be a cons- uh, some sort of combination of of, of flood jur- flood control jurisdictions to better manage the flow and and better keep it under control. That's what I think you'll see in Houston. Okay, and. Um- I'm curious, Ralph, with respect to the – back there, Ralph. Um, what about in Florida? It seems like – I don't know. My impression is I haven't been – you know, I've been to Florida a few times since the hurricanes, but I, I didn't uh, get into the areas that were hit hard. And it just seems to me like the, the construction and the code and, and the changes that have been made over the years um, work pretty well. Uh, would, would that be an accurate – uh, assessment? I think that is right, spot on. I, I, we had a meeting last week just talking about hurricanes in anticipation of this broadcast. And I asked, what general trends have you seen? And they said that homes built before the 2000 era uh, responded remarkably poor, poorly in uh, response to the wind as compared to those built afterwards. I mean, within communities, you could tell the era that the home was built because some were literally were standing and some were not. So you know, the, the, the Maria and Irma were, for here, were wind-driven events, principally, except for the Keys, and of course, with, in, in Houston. But they really showed off the benefit of uh, improving the codes to make the structure stronger. Interesting. Uh, Mike, and you don't, you don't foresee that? I mean, well, I guess, you know, Texas has building code as well. I don't know what year, um, you know, the international code you guys are following right now, but um, is there any push to maybe adopt a more recent version of the, you know, international building code? What I, what I see is the probable outcome of Harvey is that they're going to be redrawing the flood maps. They're going to be, there's going to be some more enforcement of, of the building code, uh, especially along um, um, waterways. If you're anywhere near a watershed, especially in, in Harris County, I think there'll be, there'll be increased diligence with regard to um, uh, new home construction. I do think some of the uh, neighborhoods that got flooded will probably try to get levee systems in place to control the flow of water. I know there'll be a whole lot more dredging. One of the things we found out in Harvey was that the various uh, authorities who are responsible for 
responsible for dredging our waterways had not done it in many many years so there was a there was a clog up and there was a a, 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 there was no place for the water to go, but sideways. And so I do think there, there won't be, they may, they may cause certain in certain areas, cause the, the, the building elevation to go up. Uh, but I, I don't see anything drastic happening to the building. Code. I wonder if either of you have seen, I, I saw an article. It was actually in uh, Houston, Mike, there, there was a, I want to say it was a Starbucks and it was built flood resistant essentially and um the next day after the major flooding you know after the waters had receded it was open again without any problems do either of you anticipate more of a demand from people building homes or business owners building buildings that uh they're going to demand from the contractors that they use practices that are more resistant to flooding Well, what I see happening is I see that probably being uh, implemented in more critical infrastructure areas like hospitals, schools, things like that. Well, because we've had some flooding in downtown Houston, especially the medical center before. And what they did as a, came up with as a solution to that was floodgates and cutting off certain underground systems and things like that. So I think what you'll see is I don't think you'll see the, the retail operators at the Starbucks level so much. I think what you're going to see is especially along the bayous in Houston, the critical businesses and, and things like the hospitals and uh, nursing homes, uh, things like that. I think you'll see some sort of uh, mitigation system in place, but as far as the run of the mill Starbucks down the street, I don't see that happening. Yeah, I, I agree with Mike. I think that the critical industries that see their investment in a, in a piece of property for a period of decades, they'll be concerned about flooding and, and, and repositioning their facilities in safer zones. I think what's interesting question you raise is that of the, of the homeowner who's moving to Florida or maybe moving to Houston and they're looking to buy real estate. Will the realtor be open uh, and uh, descriptive of the risks posed by these previous events with regard to the location of this of this new home uh, will developers be thinking the same thing and will homeowners be astute enough to ask questions about groundwater table elevation historic floods and so forth but i think that we would probably do them a, a service by having available maps that detail uh, circumstances of flooding so they don't buy a, uh, an asset that's at risk and just like you were saying before, Ralph, even just knowing that that home was built after, say, 2000 versus a home built before 2000, much more likely you're going to have significant damage. Absolutely. You know, another thing we noticed, it's kind of a peculiarity, is that in some of the newer homes where the first floor was concrete block, CMU, the second floor was wood frame, many times the architect will inset the second floor windows to make it look like concrete block. Mm. So aesthetically, it looks like they're both CMU, but they're not. The second floor is, is wood frame. Those structures, those windows leak. And although it may give some aesthetic appeal from the curb, from a functional point of view, uh, they fail. And that would be something you'd want to reveal to a homeowner saying, hey, it looks like a concrete block home, but it's not. But it's not. And those second floor windows are inset and, uh, they have in the past had issues. Interesting. All right, well, let's right. just move on to the next topic. I want to know 
uh, let's let's talk a little more about restoration contractors and you know some of the issues they've been dealing with as a result of these hurricanes. Um, first, I want to know what were the main problems you saw for contractors, and were they really any different from previous hurricanes? Was there any difference in um, you know how the response occurred with respect? I mean, you know, things change all the time. Insurance is slightly different. Uh, methods are a little bit different. Did you notice anything um, in restoration contractors were dealing with or were doing that was different than in the past? Uh, not, well, I think my, my response uh, is that if I look back to the work done in 2005, 6, 7, uh, when there was a flood of restoration contracts from other states coming into Florida and doing repairs, they did a lot of really questionable work. I mean, for instance, like putting another another layer of drywall over a moldy wall, cover it up, and just and move on. Um, that's just one example. I did not hear the same issues with this event because I think it was better regulated in terms of bringing in responsible or, or having uh, uh, a a population of competent restorers in the state. I didn't hear any unusual things about about drying that went on for months and you know, weeks and months. Uh, so I thought that I, I just I haven't heard anything that would, that, that would distinguish this particular event from others other than the fact that the introduction of outside vendors did not reveal uh, a level of, of low competence that I, that I heard 10 years ago. In the past, okay. And right. I'm wondering how important was the IICRC's S500, the Professional Water Damage Restoration Standard, in, in the response to this uh, event. It's been around a long time now. Uh, it's been revised pretty recently. It's uh, back to ANSI, you know, uh, ANSI-approved standard again, and I think uh, there were some improvements in the most recent edition. How has that held up on the projects that you've seen? I think it's done well. Uh, primarily because when I go to a deposition or to court, oftentimes the IICRC requirements and standards are the, are the reference point. Now, many of the contractors who do the work are members of IICRC or have had training, and uh, that is usually held up as the badge, I'm qualified. So um, I can't say that everyone has fulfilled all the obligations that are described in the guidelines, but Nonetheless, I think that it's been a very important and valuable attribute to the restoration work. Mike, want to add anything to that? You were part of that, weren't you? What I've heard from my restoration contractor clients is the biggest problem in Hurricane Harvey was logistical. Because of the widespread nature of the damage, their employees couldn't get down the street, much less to work. There was a shortage of, of drying equipment at first, which, which got sorted out pretty quickly, pretty early in the process. But it was just being able to move around town freely because Houston is a very comp, it's a very easy city when you consider it's, there's multiple ways to get from point A to point B, but everybody drives in Houston. There's very, very little effective mass transit. So it was hard for many of the contractors to uh, handle all the logistical problems because of the widespread damage. Other than that, um, their their utilization and the the uh, effect of the standard, I think, was 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 great. I didn't hear any issues with that, and 
And I think that uh, the S-500 served itself well in this disaster. And what about S-520, Mike? That's coming up. I mean, you're going to see more people, you know, having mold issues as time goes on. Um, Texas has their own regulations on mold. Is there conflict there between the S-520 and the Texas regulations, or do they work well together? They work extremely well together. I've never heard any problems or any any conflict between the state regulations and the 520. I think they work hand in glove, and uh, really, you're you're better practitioners, you're more professional, more uh, well-tuned, uh, educated remediation contractors uh, have a have a great deal of respect for the 520. And uh, the Texas Department of Health, actually, the mold license has just been transfer, transferred to the, from the Texas Department of Health, where it was for many years, to the uh, Texas uh, Department of Licensing and Registration. So I do think that there'll be some administrative changes done to the mold licensing in Texas, but I think they're going to be more uh, form over substance. I'm wondering, Ralph, when you, you do a lot of expert witness work, you look at the uh, work that was done by contractors, you um, mentioned that you look at the S-500 and, and that that is a standard that is commonly followed. I wonder if you have any advice for contractors on areas of the S-500 that maybe they're not um, not following as closely as they should or maybe not documenting as well as they should. Any tips you can give our contractors for that? Well, certainly on the, on the side of drying, uh, documentation is really important. Not only just the fact you had so many dehumidifiers or fans, but you document the moisture content in a reasonable manner uh, during the course of the drying process. But my most recent uh, case about a week and a half ago was interesting up in Georgia. And this is not an uncommon circumstance where a restoration contractor goes in after an event. It could be a storm or it could be a flood in the house. And they do their job, and six months later, they're called back to the table and say, hey, we got a problem. I got mold in my house. You're the last ones to touch it. You better come back and fix it. And, and that's, that's a complicated evalu- uh, evaluation to do because it's true that there could have been some incomplete component that the restoration contract may have done by not following completely with IICRC. But what I would encourage the restoration contractor to do when it takes on a job like that is, is formally document the condition of the home before you begin. And why is that? Because you do a great job, you dry it out, you restore materials, and then the homeowner goes back to their old habits of not turning on the air conditioner, cooking spaghetti for 18 hours a day, taking long showers, and they re-humidify the home, reintroduce the moisture that caused mold and other microbial problems before, after you're done. So in this one case, I was able to go back in time and and reformulate that there was a problem, but it pre-existed before their their restoration effort. And I think that gave the insurance provider a better perspective, not to focus on the restorer, but rather upon the environment of the home and the people and the photo documentation that were taken before the event that showed there was a problem then. So because I often find myself on both sides for the restoration contractor, I'd say there are ways to help yourself by documenting conditions before you begin so you can explain six and eight months later 
why or why not you didn't contribute to the problem. Interesting. Cliff, you want to follow up? Yeah, I, I think with, with Ralph, I, I think one of the things that was unique in this particular situation is all of the contractors that Joe and I interviewed uh, who were working during the event had long lists of clients and waiting lists and actually had to turn people away. And I think one of the things that was different in this particular situation and the primary reason that there wasn't over drying, you know, was that those contractors needed to get that equipment out as soon as possible and get it on another, get it on another project. Good so, point. I, so I think that probably a fair amount of that was going on. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's go to the roundup, gentlemen. Move them on, hit them up, hit them up, move them on, move them on, hit them up, raw hide. Cut them out, ride them in, ride them in, let them out, cut them out, ride them in, raw I'm going to take, I'm going to put one question out and then I think we're going to see if Pete uh, Consigli, the restoration industry's global watchdog, can join us. Uh, I'm not sure if he's still on the line or not, but gents, I want to throw one out. Um, let's talk a little bit about the legal landscape following these events. Um, any recommendations uh, or have any of your recommendations changed with respect to potential legal liabilities um, and or do you see any unusual lawsuits maybe coming out of these disasters? Start with Mike. Uh, absolutely. What, what happened in Houston was a very unique situation, and I think there's adequate uh, or really overwhelming evidence to support this claim that most of the flooding done in Houston uh, was man-made either through lack of, of maintenance of the watershed systems or the premature uh, uncontrolled release from the, either the Attic Sparker Reservoir or, or Lake Conroe. When you have s things like that happen, one of the things you have to realize from a legal perspective is those acts are done by entities that can claim sovereign immunity. So you really can't sue them. But what you can do is you can try to recover damages for their taking of your property without compensation. And the way that's handled primarily is through inverse condemnation lawsuits. So one of the things that the law, the legal community in, in Houston especially is, is championing, is trying to, is trying to push right now is uh, these inverse condemnation lawsuits against these regulatory authorities. So when you, when you look at it, it's a very unique legal landscape, and, and this is the first time I think it's happened where so much of the flooding has been caused by some of the premature release from a number of these watersheds where they, since we were very, we were somewhat, uh, there, there was time left in the hurricane season when this happened. There were a lot of authorities that released water to make make way, make room for additional flood water from the next hurricane. Well, the problem was there was no new hurricane. There was no additional flooding event. So what you had was you created additional damage based upon uh, an action taken to prevent speculative damage in the future, uh, the additional rainfall. So I, I don't think, I think that there's going to be a very unique uh, area of law, and I think things are going to change when this is all said and done. Interesting. Ralph, anything you'd like to add on that topic? Well, first of all, I'm not an attorney, so I don't want to give the impression that I'm giving any legal advice. 
But uh, as far as themes and in, in types of claims, I don't really see a big difference. Uh, I think that most um, plaintiff attorneys are looking at policy language to find an opportunity where they can take a portion of the policy promises and try to assign it to an event that occurred in the home, a sudden event, sudden accidental event, if possible, associated with the storm. And then by leveraging that, that area, they file a lawsuit by the hundreds and then try to um, uh, get some type of a, of an agreement about the homeowner and the, and the damages that they can, they can benefit from. But that theme is played over and over and over again. So I don't see a big distinction in terms of the hurricane or any other claim with the exception of volume. And so I know that insurance companies are being overwhelmed with hundreds of, of, of insurance uh, claims and, and lawsuits. And uh, so I, I see the same thing played over and over again in daily claims or in hurricane claims. Interesting. Okay. Cliff, anything you'd like to add before we wrap it up here? No, I'm good, Pete. Or Joe. I'm sorry. Let's see if we got Pete Consigli on maybe for a final thought. Pete? Oh, we got to unmute you. Hang in there. Pete, we have you on the line, buddy? Yeah. Can you hear me okay, guys? Yeah, you're great. Hear you, Pete. Yeah. Hey, uh, great great show. Uh, first of all, I, I want to thank uh, Cliff for that wonderful eulogy at halftime of Billy Lakin. Um, we really miss him. Congratulations to Ernie Storer. That's great. Um, uh, the, uh, the one little comment I'll say, and then I got a couple of comments from the show for the rap. Seeing our magazine, uh, Cliff and myself helped coordinate a bunch of, uh, the eulogy, which will be posted on, uh, well, obviously it'll be on, on the blog, part of the blog, but it'll be posted on the CNR hub, uh, content hub on the RA website later this afternoon, but also the, Right up on the, the uh, all of the awards last night in Austin. Uh, right up on Ernie and um, the two Phoenix Award winners, and also the Golden Quill Award winners. So anyone would be interested in that, they may want to go check it out on, on the uh, on the website. Um, uh, so I got uh, I got two things. I think that uh, early on you guys were talking a little bit about the public adjusters and. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like anything, just with the same contractors, lawyers, the whole nine yards. You know, you have, you have the kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I, I, I remember the, the show that we had a couple of years ago with uh, Paul Hanahan from the fair, who was one of the founding guys of the late, you know, the Florida public adjusters. But uh, I think it's important there to remind the listeners to consult with contractors, you know, even any general public that, that uh, you know, uh, is, is a fan of the show. To, uh, to go to, to, to those websites of, of the reputable associations for the adjusters to really look. They, they have a codes of ethics, things that are similar to a lot of the contractor codes. So I think it's important to, to mention that. Um, I, the other thing that I've been hearing uh, through the grapevine and through my peeps, if you would, is, well, two things. Number one, that question that you asked, Joe, um, just before, after the roundup, before you but, uh, you know, I had Mike and, and uh, Ralph comment. If I had a guess of your speak of the uh, listeners who sent it in, it probably was the type of question that Mr. Lapitaire would send in. I, I know he couldn't call in for the whole show, but about half time, he, he, he was able to call in. That's a question right up his alley because I remember in talking to John and a lot of the work that he's doing as an assessor throughout the state of Florida, you know, his gut tells him that 
there could be more lawsuits that can come out of out of this whole Irma thing than uh, than there were from Sandy and a lot of these other, other hurricanes. So I guess time will kind of tell in Florida because there's uh, there's a lot going on, you know, that uh, I think is real close to the edge in, in in both the assessment area and and in the remediation area with the licensing around mold and all that. The other thing too, and I I don't know. Uh, you know, because Michael's heard this, but I will tell you another thing that I've heard is I heard that there's going to be uh, things that are possibly going to affect our industry that are going to filter up to the, the attorney general's offices in Texas. Any of you that remember when Harvey first hit, the attorney general came on the air but while the hurricane was still going, warning people against ripping off the citizen. Pam Bondi, the attorney general for Florida, she kind of also filled in, and unfortunately, she was on the been on the news shows the last couple of days because of the tragedy that, that we had in Florida. But yeah. um, I, I think in Texas, in particular, I think potentially there are going to be some prominent people in this industry that could that could be sucked up into things that could be bad press because of uh, potential price gouging and uh, unethical activities and things of this nature. It's something that really pains my heart. But it, you know, these are things that happen, and I think it's up to the industry to self-regulate itself before the government comes down with a heavy hand. And that, that was exactly what Paul Hanahan said. Cliff, if you remember in the blog and on the show when you pressed him, he said that's how the public justice in Florida straightened things out after Katrina and after the foreign year in 2004 because it was so radical that they, you know, they were afraid the government would come down and they had to straighten that out. And, you know, they, they probably, I think, done as good a job as they can, but you know, oftentimes these things backslide, and I think this is kind of a plague to the industry. So, but whatever it's worth, guys, Joe and Cliff, I want to really thank you with uh, all this coverage that you guys have done for this season. You know, allowing me to help you set some of these shows up. I, I think they've been fantastic, Joe. I think it was great the other day uh, and the email that you sent out that you listed links for all the shows to kind of culminate it. With uh, we couldn't have had two better guys to culminate the show, Mr. Bad Moon Rising. And of course, that good old friend, Texas Rattlesnake legal eagle of mine from, from H-Town, or as they say in Texas, who's stoned, because uh, I think you guys really, uh, uh, honestly, really give a real practical, uh, honest, a very good viewpoint. I think it'll be very uh, uh, useful, and I think uh, I think uh, the talking points that Cliff puts in the blog will be really good for a, lo- uh, you know, a lot of the readers and people that will call in and will, will download, uh, download that information. So, look, I, I really thank you guys. Uh, really for all of this. I think it's really been good. And uh, here we are in two, 2018, and we'll move on to the next thing, whatever it is. And um, anyway, thanks a lot to everyone, guys. I'll, I'll turn it back over to you, Joe and Cliff. Thank you for your help. Um, it's always been a pleasure working with you, and I, I can't think of a better way to end the show than uh, the way you just did. Um, we will also be watching out for any, you know, any follow-up, uh, good good tips you gave us there on things to watch for with respect to the gouging and the attorney generals will be keeping an eye on that for listeners but uh hey we're gonna thank first of all bad moon rising dr ralph moon thank you ralph (laughs) attorney michael bowden thank you mike for joining us i know you've been busy yes sir uh, my co-host, the Z-Man, uh, Pete Consigli, the Globe Restoration Industry Global Watchdog. Thank you. Uh, at the controls, John, you got to have faith. Um, our second full show on IAQ Radio Plus here, and uh, I think it's gone pretty well. We've had good feedback from folks. Uh, we'll be back next Friday. We've got uh, part two with Sal LaDuca. 
electricity, electromagnetic fields, and indoor environmental quality. A very interesting uh, show we had part one with Sal and uh, looking forward to finishing up part two. Uh, was supposed to be last week, but I was under the weather. I'm back. And uh, we're back with IAQ Radio. We'll see you next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.